0: I'm Phil Moorhart, senior editor of American Libraries, the magazine of the American Library Association, and this is Call Number with American Libraries. As November draws to a close, the days grow shorter and temperatures chill and thoughts naturally turn towards food. Food is the great unifier. It brings people together and bridges cultures and divides. And it can be used as a teaching tool, giving insights into everything from history and politics to mathematics. Today, on Call Number with American Libraries, we look at food. First, American Libraries managing editor Tara Dankowski speaks with model, author, and top chef television host and producer Padma Lakshmi. Next, American Library's editor and publisher Sunita Sinroy speaks with Hannah Appleby Weinberg, the library intern at America's Test Kitchen. And finally, American Library's associate editor Sally Ann Price talks with Mayuk Sen, author of Tastemakers Seven Immigrant Women Who Revolutionized Food in America. But first, a word from a sponsor. Are you considering a library construction project but have no idea where to start? Tappé Architects has designed more than 100 libraries and has a 40-year history of excellence. Use their free library building planning guide to jumpstart your next building project. Go to tappé.com slash podcast to download their booklet that explains each step of planning a new or renovated library. Get your free planning guide at tappé.com slash podcast. Tape Architects, designing spaces that inspire. Model, author, and television host and producer, Padma Lakshmi, is having a productive year. The 18th season of her reality competition show, Top Chef, concluded this summer, snagging five Emmy nominations. She released a children's book, Tomatoes for Neela, with illustrator Juana Martinez-Neal, and her travelogue series, Taste the Nation, returned to Hulu on November 4th, with a collection of holiday episodes. American Library's managing editor, Tara Dinkowski, talked with Lakshmi about the intersection of cooking and family, how we can save the restaurant industry and the value of creating space for everyone's food story.
1: At your talk at um, the American Library Association's recent annual conference, you mentioned that your grandmother taught you a love of food. Um, Are there any distinct food memories that you associate with her or any meaningful recipes that she's passed down to you?
2: Oh, sure, yes. My grandmother was a great cook. And she was a very practical woman, and she had to feed 10 people on a two-burner stove for many, many years of my childhood. And so she was always cooking, and she was always imparting um, life lessons or just practical knowledge about cooking or housekeeping or anything else to me every chance she got. And I learned the most just, you know, standing at her elbow. And doing what she told me I remember from very early on she had this long handled really beautiful blackened iron ladle and the handle was a good two feet long at least and she would use that iron ladle and put it directly on the flame on one of the burners in the stove and she would fry oil and once that oil got hot she would put in mustard seeds and cumin seeds and hot dried red chilies and at the last minute as soon as the mustard seeds started popping and you know sort of uh, exploding out of that little ladle she would throw in some curry leaves and that would cause a whole new slew of pyrotechnic sizzles and and sounds and and that smell that smell of frying curry leaves and chilies and mustard seeds and cumin is so integral to my childhood. Nothing takes me back um, quicker to my childhood than that smell of frying leaves and spices. Um, You've
1: been a vocal supporter of restaurants and restaurant workers um, as they've weathered the pandemic specifically. Um, What do you think it will take for the industry to get through this moment?
2: People don't realize how low the margins are in restaurants and they don't realize that many restaurant workers are barely being paid a living wage for what is very physically taxing, grueling work. And I think that those margins and the the, the hardships of those people have been laid bare during quarantine. And I think the restaurant industry will bounce back. It can't help but not. It's one of our biggest sectors in our economy, and it's also a major way in our society that we socialize with each other, that we bond with family and friends and even do business. So the restaurant industry will, of course, come back. But how will it come back? I think we have a, we're have we at a crossroads, and we're at a very interesting, painful, but also important part in our in the restaurant industry's evolution. And I think it's a great opportunity to right a lot of wrongs that have been going on for a long time. And, you know, if we can use this moment to restructure the hours that many workers have, that will be a big start, making it more equitable, making sure we allow both our male and female restaurant workers to have a life. Um, outside of the restaurant so that they, too, can grow their families and do so in a way that doesn't have them missing for most of the hours of the day. That would be an improvement as well. You know, I I think in American culture, we're always trying to look at uh, what best value we can get out of every scenario um, so we're always wanting you know the biggest portion for the cheapest price and all of that, but we're not thinking about all of the hands that played a role in bringing that taco or you know plate of lasagna or burger or pizza to our table and We should think about that. I know that I, for one, would rather pay a couple extra bucks for my burger or pizza or seven course tasting menu if I knew that people were not. Um, being pillaged at their jobs for that discount. And I think most people will feel that way.
1: Um, I'm I'm a huge uh, Top Chef fan, and I think that this past season, which recently wrapped, um, was perhaps one of the most diverse in terms of contestants' backgrounds and the cuisines that they cooked. And so I wanted to know, how does it feel for you as both a producer of the show and as an immigrant, to see so many foods of different cultures, Um, perhaps those cultures who've maybe been told at some point that their food isn't fine dining enough, Um, how does that feel to see that represented on primetime TV?
2: It feels incredibly gratifying to be able to put in practice on Top Chef a lot of the things that I have believed and known for years, which is that American people are eating all Kinds of foods not just fancy French food and that all of those dishes and the people who make them are compelling and interesting and fun to watch so to see the incredibly warm reception that Top Chef has gotten not only from its longtime fans but also from the Television Academy with you know more Emmy nominations than we've ever had is, is really gratifying. I have been working hard along with all the other producers on the show to to make it happen, and I have a lot of help. You know, I'm not doing this. I'm actually not doing most of it. It's my showrunner, Donine Arquinas and all of the field producers and stuff, but I'm happy to be a small part of that decision-making to really push the envelope and open up Top Chef to continually be better and keep in touch with the Zeitgeist and be a show that reflects the food industry at any given moment, including what's going on today.
1: Yeah. Um, Congratulations on the second season of Taste the Nation, by the way, which is coming out in November. Thank you. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, it's a really great program and um, you know, the first season of Taste the Nation showcases the culinary contributions of our country's immigrant groups. Um, do you think food has the power to bridge divides in our fraught political climate? And when filming this show, which places left the biggest impression on you?
2: Well, thank you. We just now finished. We're not doing, I mean, it's not exactly a season two. We will go back to film season two. It's a mil, it's a mini holiday season X. Um, You know, obviously, with the way the show is done, it would be hard to go into intimate spaces like that with a pandemic still an issue in our culture. So we were only able to go back and film um three or th- th- four episodes, actually, four episodes that will be out on November 4th. Um, And we're calling it Taste the Nation Holiday Edition. So it's not season two yet. It's, I guess, season one and a half. Um, but we're very happy and that we all got to go back to to work and film the show. It's a labor of love for all of the people that are on it. We're a much smaller crew obviously than Top Chef. Um but you know, we're very, very proud of our show. And um we didn't want the trail to go cold. We wanted to give viewers who were so supportive and vocal about how much they love the show. Something to chew on, so we decided to make this little mini seasonette that was just focused around the holidays, so we we go to four different communities around the country, and we talk about you know the full moon festival, and we talk about you know Hanukkah and Christmas and Thanksgiving, and what those mean to not only the communities where we are, but just the whole country um, at large. And, you know, some of the best experiences I've had in television have been while filming the first season of Taste the Nations. Um, some of the places that left the biggest impression on me was, for example, El Paso. Um, El Paso ha- is a place that I've never actually been to before I filmed there. I had been, you know, traveling all over Texas when I filmed with Top Chef there, and I also have family that lives in Austin, et cetera. But, i have never been to El Paso, and just to see how fluidly there is not just a Texas culture or a Mexican culture, but this third thing, this Tex-Mex culture, which has people fluidly going back and forth across the border and conducting their lives in a very symbiotic relationship between El Paso and the city of Juarez, um, was was kind of really eye opening for me, and it taught me about the implications that a false border or wall or or some kind of you know delineation does separate people, people who just want to live their lives freely and peacefully and and prosperously you know, and are trying to do that working around um a lot of these policies that don't take into account the actual lives of the people on the ground. That was very eye-opening. You know, I'm really happy to be able to do a show which doesn't just, you know, they're very different shows, right? So Top Chef kind of exalts this fine dining, rarefied experience and it's wonderful because many of us will not have the opportunity to go to those fine dining restaurants. So hopefully the viewer, audience member at home watching TV can live vicariously through us, as we describe the experience of eating these foods and really uh, not only describe the experience but you get to see what goes into making that food behind the scenes in the kitchen, you know, which is what you never get when when you go to a fine dining restaurant so that's useful for that, but I still wanted to do a show that taught you and explored how most of us eat on any given week and saying that you know whether you eat kimchi and japchae or you know mango pickle and yogurt rice um that your stories were important too and that your personal foodways within the larger american food umbrella those foodways are valuable they're important they're compelling and they're no less interesting than any, any else, anyone else's um, story or experience of eating today. And I'm glad that I was vindicated. I'm glad that people like both Taste the Nation and Top Chef because they've both been, for me, my life's work, you know, in food. They're really, really important to me, and they allow me to exercise different parts of my
3: food brain.
0: Is your library in need of space, but you don't know if a renovation, addition, or new construction is right for your needs? Use our library assessment tool to help direct your construction process. TAPE Architects has designed libraries of all sizes, ranging from new construction to historic renovations and additions. Go to tape.com slash podcast to get your library building assessment tool. TAPE Architects, enhancing communities through library design. The popular TV cooking show America's Test Kitchen, and all of its related spin-off shows, books, podcasts, and more, strives to help viewers, readers, and listeners become better cooks. And they do that via intense research and testing to come up with foolproof recipes. Crucial to this process is America's Test Kitchen Library, home by library intern Hannah Appleby-Weinberg. American Library's editor and publisher, Cindy DeCeneroy, spoke with Appleby-Weinberg about working at the venerated show, how the library is used to develop recipes, and more.
3: Anna, can you talk a little bit about the concept of America's Test Kitchen um, and explain to, to folks who may not um, know much about the show?
4: Sure. Um, so Ameri- America's Test Kitchen has a lot of different brands under its umbrella. We have um, Cooks Illustrated, Cooks Country, they do cookbooks, there's the TV show, um, podcasts, a lot of other things as well. Um, and sort of the premise behind all of them, what um, unites America's Test Kitchen, is this idea of solving common kitchen problems and that there's a correct way um, to make a recipe, that you can develop a recipe with a lot of research and testing and come up with a recipe that's basically foolproof. And if you follow the recipe, it's going to come out the way that you that you like it. Um, so that's the purpose, is to help home cooks um, make foolproof recipes.
3: And what made you want to join?
4: So, um I first heard about ATK through my dad. Um and like many home cooks and inexperienced cooks, he was really struggling with cooking because he didn't understand terms like saute, like what does saute mean? How long do you do it and what should it look like? Stuff like that. Um and when he discovered ATK, what they do is really different. So they explain a lot more in depth. Um, They give visual cues and sometimes smell or sound cues as well that tell the cook exactly what, um, you know, the onions, for example, should look like when they're done. And there's also a very exact order to the recipes. So there's no guesswork about how you're going to multitask when you're making this recipe. Um, and so when my dad discovered this, um he actually started making things that were edible, which was great <laughs> for for us. Um and so we all became fans of ATK and when I saw the job listing for the library intern, I just knew that um I had to apply. My dad would never forgive me if I didn't apply for this. Um so I did and that's how I got the job.
3: So I bet he was extremely excited when when you got that position
4: so excited. Um yeah, unfortunately I haven't been able to bring him to work yet because of uh, pandemic restrictions. Um but hopefully sometime in the future I'll be able to bring him and give him a tour. Um I know he's going to be really excited about that.
3: And what is the right way to saute onions?
4: Um you'll you'll have to ask some of my coworkers. <laughs> they know they know a lot better than me. Um but uh, yeah, the great thing about a t k is there's so much visual information, so um there's even like a lot of times they'll do a series of photos that show what the onions look like through the through the five minutes or whatever um that you're sauteing them um so if you're a visual learner, it's a really great way to learn how to cook
3: and what are your duties um as part of your internship? What do you do?
4: So um, I'm really a one-man band here. Um, I'm the only library intern, and I'm the only person who specifically works in the library. So I do everything from collection development to helping cooks when they're doing their recipe research, particularly um, what I help a lot with is historical or cultural research on the dishes that they're doing. I also do all of the circulation, shelving, um, cataloging new items, weeding, I maintain our archival materials, um, I maintain the library website, and then I also do a lot of training of the cooks and other employees on how to make the most of our collection and how to use our databases and the physical books that we have. Are there any favorite parts of the job? Yeah, so um my background is in youth services, and I'm hoping to be a children's librarian in the future um hmm. so my favorite thing that I get to do at work is anytime I get to work with the ATK kids team, Um, they have a podcast, they do books, um, they do a lot of different things. And what I've helped them with in the past is doing initial research for the new books that they're starting. So like um, the complete cookbook for young scientists just came out recently. And if I was helping them with that, what I would do is um, sort of figure out what science books and science of cooking books, are out there for kids, um, sort of what's been done and what hasn't been done. And I would do collection development in that area for them so that when they're researching the book, they have a lot to draw on. Um, and then, of course, I also help them with, like anybody else, I help them with their specific recipes once they decide what they're what they're going to research. I think one of the,
3: the co-hosts, Julia, um, was promoting one of the kids' books at an annual mm-hmm. conference not that long ago. I remember picking up the the galley um it, and yes. using
4: it yeah that it might have been the complete cookbook for young scientists because that just came out recently um and it's it's awesome i've i've flipped through it a lot um yeah, there all was of one, the kids stuff so fun
3: there was one with a french toast recipe that that i've used and and it's a hit <laughs> with my kids
4: awesome yeah <laughs> i love to hear that
3: do you get to see the fruits of your research and or labor on tv
4: I would say it's more often I see it in print, um, so either in Cook's Country or Cook's Illustrated Magazine um, or in the books, um, like I've said, um, just because those are the teams that tend to come to me for help more often. Um, but yeah, it's it's always super cool to see something that I've had some little tiny part in um, be published. There's
3: a lot of history included in some of those publications. You go back quite a ways to research the origins of ingredients to recipes. Can you talk a bit more about that?
4: Yeah, yeah, that's that's something one of the main things that I do at my job is help with historical research. Um so I tell I tell everybody that I work with, my background isn't in cooking whatsoever. It's in um you know, information and libraries. So what I help with the most, I would say, is sort of tracing recipes back, um, finding access to really old cookbooks that are rare or lesser known, um, and looking past, you know, what you can find on the first few pages of a search engine, for example, um, and sort of digging into old library collections to find the origins of of certain recipes. So that's that's probably what I spend the most time doing um, at my job, even though there's a lot of other tasks as well.
3: Do you have a favorite
4: historical nugget? Hmm. Let me think. Um so my favorite things to research historically are um ingredients rather than specific recipes. So I really enjoy doing research on um like recently I did okra. Um and so I did some research on the various ways that okra is used around the world and how different culinary traditions have either dealt with or embraced the sliminess of okra and its viscosity. Um, So, you know, some people, um, like in the South, they fry it and dry it out so that it's crispy. Um, Other people use the sliminess to, like, thicken a stew. Um, So that that type of research is super interesting to me, sort of um, either tracing the history of specific ingredients as they traveled around the world or um, looking at how um, different cultures have historically made use of a specific ingredient, because I just find it fascinating how one plant, one ingredient, it has been used in so many different ways throughout history.
3: Well, you mentioned that you're not coming at the uh, internship as a cook necessarily, Mm -hmm. but has the internship inspired you to cook more?
4: Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've always, I've always liked cooking. I just have no formal training in it whatsoever. Um, And I definitely don't have anywhere near the skills that um, my coworkers have. Um, but I do I do really enjoy cooking and um I cook from ATK's recipes a lot. Um I also cook a lot not in the ATK way. I'm kind of the person who likes to I like to go to the farmers market and get my weekly vegetables, kind of see what's there and then try to make up recipes from what I have. Whereas the ATK way is very much um, you know, really follow this recipe to the tea and um use the exact ingredients that we that we say to here so i i cook both ways but i like i like trying new things well what kind of impact
3: has the internship had on your career thus far
4: so i've really learned a lot about working in special collections um, and particularly how important it is for special collections librarians to be that expert and to know their collection really inside and out um, Unfortunately, this has been a little bit difficult for me since I didn't have access to a lot of our physical collection for the past year and a half um, And I had to use more digital ebooks and things like that um, but I really have a greater appreciation now for the many hats that special collections librarians have to wear and I've also learned a lot about doing research and particularly how to locate old and rare books Um like the other day, a cook asked me for some specific recipes that were in two cookbooks, one of which was from the 1930s and the other one was from the 60s. And both were out of print. Um, neither one was in our collection. And I was able to find her copies of these print, these out-of-print books um, almost immediately, which is not something I would have been able to do when I first started.
3: And how long is the internship? It's, is it a two-year program or
4: it's it's not specific. Um so I started in November of 2019. So I've been here almost 2 years now. Um so it's it really depends on the person who took the internship. Um I didn't have any time limitations um other than I'm graduating in May from library school. So um so that that's my limitation, but I I had started in fall of 2019. So um at that point, I had a lot of time ahead of me before I was going to be potentially moving and taking another job. So um, so it really depends on the person. Some people, uh, some interns have been here for a lot shorter time. Um, some, I think, longer. Um, it just depends.
3: How are you going to transfer some of these skills into, um, you said you wanted to become a children's librarian, is that right? So Yeah. yeah, how are you going to use this going forward?
4: So one, thing that, one skill that I've had from this job um, that I definitely think I'll take forward is that I do a lot of education in my current job. So a lot of what I do is teaching cooks, not only helping them with research, but teaching them how to do research themselves. Um, and I do a lot, especially over the past year, I've done a lot of trainings, um, more trainings because we've had the option of Zoom and more people have been available for trainings. Um, And I think that that skill of taking something that you know and teaching it to somebody else will really serve me well when I'm working with kids, especially when I'm helping kids with research, doing, um, for example, like school projects and things like that and teaching them the research skills that I have. Are there any holiday
3: meals you'll be cooking this year or any favorite go to recipes?
4: Um, Well, I'm looking forward to eating mashed potatoes (laughs) because those are my favorite. Um, My grandma makes amazing mashed potatoes. Um, I could eat potatoes in pretty much any form. So looking forward to that. Um, As for what I'm going to be cooking, I have a couple of like go-to gathering holiday type meals. Um, Both are from one of ATK's books, uh, which is the Vegan for Everybody book. And um, the first one is vegetable lasagna, which is just out of this world, amazing. Um, And then there's this, like, fudgy brownie recipe from that book as well. And those are the two that I kind of, if I have to go somewhere for a party or a family gathering um, and there's a potluck, that's what I bring. So I'm sure I'll be cooking those probably multiple times (laughs) as the holiday season comes up.
0: What will your next library look like? How will it meet the needs of modern learning styles and adapt for the future? Tape Architects has designed stunning, sustainable libraries that work, ranging from an AIA-ALA library building award-winning library to lead platinum historic renovations. Get inspiration for your next library building project from our project gallery at tappecom slash podcast. Tape Architects, designing places that inspire. Who's really behind America's appetite for foods from around the world? In Tastemakers, Seven Immigrant Women Who Revolutionized Food in America, Mayuk Sen looks at seven women, all immigrants, who left an indelible mark on the way Americans eat today, from World War II to the present. American Library's Associate Editor Sally Ann Price spoke with Sen about the book and its inspirations, his career, and more. Here's their talk.
5: how did you get into writing about food?
6: Yeah, so it happened by total accident. Uh, back in 2016, I was a 24-year-old freelance writer. I was an aspiring film critic, and so I had, uh, you know, kind of carved out a very a small, not very lucrative career for myself as a freelance writer, covering film, television, music, basically every aspect of the culture except food. (laughs) And so I get an email one day from an editor at a site called Food 52, which I'm sure many listeners might be familiar with. And it was very much a home cooking site that also had an e-commerce arm. And they asked me if I might be interested in being a staff writer at that site, because they were looking for someone who was not necessarily necessarily a food person, excuse me, was not necessarily a food person, Uh, someone who was not an avid home cook or someone who uh, was a restaurant enthusiast, let's say. And I was very much neither of those things, you know. And so I took the meeting because I I wanted a job with salary and benefits. Uh, And they were looking for someone who was going to be able to write about food in a way that reach people in the broader culture. And uh, I felt as though, you know, this would afford me a really nice opportunity to expand my uh, capabilities as a writer. And I was also really uh, yearning for the trust of an editor uh, to let me write longer, deeper stories that I was not otherwise getting the opportunity to write as a freelancer who is firing off hot takes for $250. So, that's uh, my, That marks my circuitous uh, beginnings in uh, the food writing world back in 2016. It was definitely uh, a challenging um, career change, but I think ultimately one that I'm very
5: happy with. And um, I understand you also teach food journalism at Columbia. Um, I'm wondering what sort of uh, questions do your students bring or what do maybe people commonly misunderstand about food journalism?
6: Totally. So I actually teach uh, food journalism at NYU right now. But um, so, yeah, there are many misconceptions that a lot of my students bring to the class. And I think that I do not blame them for having these misconceptions. Uh, Many of them feel that food writing uh, traffics in luxury or that it is uh, mostly just recipes or restaurant reviews. And I try to show them the world of food writing that goes beyond uh, those two sorts of micro genres that exist within this larger genre. Uh, And my interest has always been as someone, especially who came to this uh, industry as an outsider, uh, using food to tell larger human stories and uh, to use food as a narrative tool to better understand humanity, where a person comes from, culture and ideals that shape them and what they care about, and uh, that is kind of the lesson that I try to impart upon my students in all of our readings, uh, in the assignments that I make them do, et cetera, and uh, I'm, I'm so grateful to have students who really are willing to learn and absorb those lessons, uh, because it's it's not quite common. <laughs>
5: And where did the book come from? At what point did the book uh, become part of your your journey in writing about food?
6: Absolutely. So uh, the idea first kind of came to me quite early on in my food writing career. So it was 2017 when I was 25 years old when uh, a friend of mine who is not a food writer, he was looking at my budding body of work at Food52, you could say. uh, And he noticed that a lot of my stories at that site focused on People from marginalized communities who had not necessarily been honored uh, sufficiently by the food establishment or by larger cultural memory in the same way that figures like Julia Child or James Beard have. You know, those are two uh, close to household names, I would say, for many people, at least Julia Child certainly is. And uh, a lot of these figures uh, I focused on tended to be people of color, women of color. Queer people, queer people of color, immigrants, immigrants of color, people who fell under all of those umbrellas. And what I tried my best to do was restore dignity to their stories with as much care and sensitivity as possible. And so my friend was looking at these sorts of stories that seem so disconnected, even though they have this thematic through line. And he said, huh, I wonder if you're the person to maybe write a book about food and immigration. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I'll put it in my back pocket. You know, because I was 25 years old, I had no idea what I was doing. I felt just uh, completely unequipped to take on a project like a book. Fast forward to a year later, I go freelance of my own volition. And at that point, I feel as though uh, I had established myself enough to maybe uh, start working on a book proposal. And you know that's 2018, and I'm 26 years old, I believe, at that point. And I kind of uh, took a look back uh, at the various conversations I had seen within the food media over the course of that year, uh, from 2017 to 2018. And I'd seen so many prominent food publications peddle myths that I found quite harmful. Uh, there are a lot of talking points I saw that said uh, immigrants get the job done, immigrants feed America, etc. And to me, even if You know, these talking points may have been well-intentioned. These talking points ultimately dehumanized immigrants by centering a consumer whom the American food media has privileged for so long. That person is likely white, uh, middle to upper middle class. And essentially what's happening when you hear that kind of talking point is an immigrant's worth and value is based on their productivity. And I felt as though the best way to write against that within my very limited skill set at that time and still now was to tell the stories of immigrants themselves in food in the most granular way possible and really honor their struggle and every single thing that they fought against while trying to establish themselves.
5: And how did you uh, sort of go about identifying these women and researching their histories? Um, <laughs> I'm curious about that.
6: Totally. Well, it was definitely a process uh, and not one that ended after I uh, sold the proposal in late 2018, because the seven women I had set out to write about in the proposal stage were not the seven women who ended up in this book. Uh, So (laughs) one way I found a lot of story subjects was actually by uh, searching terms like the Julia Child of, and Craig Claiborne called her. So for listeners who might not be familiar, Craig Claiborne was the food editor of the New York Times beginning in 1957, and he had tremendous influence, and a lot of the immigrant female voices whom he championed ended up becoming huge stars in their era. And so I felt as though just Googling those two terms would yield many story subjects who may have been uh, lost to history or may not be as well known to Uh, my generation, as they really should be. Uh, So that definitely helped. Uh, And that's kind of how I found a lot of my book subjects. But once I got to the actual writing stage, I faced another challenge, which was that, you know, I wanted to make sure that I was finding as much material as possible, especially for the subjects of mine who were deceased, and there were five of them in the book. I want to make sure I was finding enough material that presented them speaking in their own voices. And the way that I found that was through accessing memoirs or cookbooks of theirs with memoiristic passages or wealth of interviews that they gave throughout their lifetime and for some of the women who were in my initial proposal I could not find any of that sort of material to really mine and honor their story uh, as as much as I wanted to and so there were so many stories that ended up on the cutting room floor uh, which I truly regret but I felt as though you know, shoehorning those uh, subjects into a book like this would actually do a great disservice to their legacy rather than really honoring it in the way that I wanted to with this book.
5: And what sort of arcs or themes emerged to you as you assembled these stories, really lasering in specifically on immigrant women?
6: Absolutely. Well, I mean, I think uh, what I find so inspiring about each of these stories is that these women were able to succeed within or outside of a system, ultimately, uh, that was not necessarily designed to accommodate them. All of them faced many, many struggles. And I'm sure that so many readers will come to this book wanting to know this larger story about how America became the so-called melting pot of uh, quote-unquote diverse cuisines and global cuisines. And it's true that this country has a unique representation of so many cuisines from around the globe. But embedded in that reality for consumers is so much struggle and what i tried to do as i was writing each one of these chapters was to really identify the struggle and a lot of these women you know they had to fight to really get the food establishment which is so powerful and which is where so much capital was concentrated to really notice them and give them access to capital and opportunity that would otherwise not be available to them and some of them succeeded uh, within those constraints. Others decided to forge their own path independent of that establishment. And uh, I I found uh, just kind of the uh, different approaches that each woman took so fascinating. And, you know, all of them in some way are kind of models for what I want to do in my career.
5: And do you have a favorite recipe from the book?
6: Oh, boy. Well, you know, the book itself does not have any recipes, uh, which was um, a very intentional choice. But, you know, uh, I've had the great fortune of uh, the New Yorker Web has been running excerpts from the book uh, since August, and alongside those excerpts are recipes from the women. Um, and so, I really uh, enjoyed making um, the French-born chef Madeline Kamens' uh, fig tarts, uh, which ran with my New Yorker excerpt uh, for her. It was it was the first fig tart I would ever made, and you know I have to be honest and say that. You know, in spite of being in this profession for five years, I remain a very timid cook. You know, I entered food writing as someone who is very much not a home cook, you know, would usually burn his dinner, cooks well enough to survive. That is still the case. Yet even I was able to not totally botch this fig tart. And it was truly wonderful. And it was a perfect late summer dessert.
0: That wraps another episode of Call Number with American Libraries. Many thanks to Padma, Hannah, and Mayuk for talking food with us. Join us next month as we take a look back at some of the many authors that have spoken with American Libraries over the past year. Do you have feedback regarding one of our segments, something you're curious about, or thoughts on a topic of interest in the library community that you'd like to see us address here on Call Number? Well, we want to hear from you. You can reach out to us directly and tell us your thoughts and opinions on our shows and more with your own voice. Call 312 312- and leave us a message that might, just might, be featured on a future episode. That's 312-857-6761. We hope to hear from each and every one of you. As always, I'm Phil Moorhart, Senior Editor of American Libraries, the magazine of the American Library Association, and this is Call Number with American Libraries.